Well, last week we entered into one of the most famous and most significant narratives in all redemptive history, namely the, uh, the Noah narrative of the flood and the ark. And, and one of the big takeaways from last week was, as we saw that Noah and his people stood out as beacons of righteousness amidst a world and a culture of corruption, that Noah's faith was, was not just active in his righteousness where he received the gospel truth and he was saved by faith. Yes, that. But it was also present then in his obedience because as you'll recall, there was no way that Noah could have fully grasped God's purposes in the commands that God had given Noah. But that didn't matter. Noah trusted God. Noah did everything God commanded for decades unknowingly. And we thought about it this way. We, we said Noah's obedience to all of God's word was not contingent upon his complete understanding. It went the other way. Noah's understanding of God's purposes would come as a result of his obedience. And today, Noah is going to see the salvation that the Lord accomplished for him and his family while he built a boat on dry land for decades. And again, we will read another lengthy text. And so if you would pull out your copy of God's word, we will be in Genesis chapter seven, starting in verse six. We will go through eight, 12. So Genesis beginning in chapter seven, verse six. <clears throat> And hear now the word of the Lord. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, so Moses being very specific here, this is actual history, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. 
And it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. This is a global flood. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed on the earth 150 days. And then here we reach the center of the chiasm, remember from last week. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided and the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of 40 days, Noah may opened the window of the ark and, that he had made and sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground But the dove found no place to set her foot, and and she returned to him into the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his, his hand, and he took her, and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we stare soberly at this scene in your word, as we see the judgment that we deserve and the death of this first world, And as we see the redemption and the new creation that is ours through the rebirth of the world and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would work both humility in us and then you would fill us with great amazement at how glorious the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have been grafted into by faith. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today, again, we encounter a, a mountain of text and 
We could ascend that hill by any number of trails, but for our purposes, here's how I want to approach the text today at a broader level, perhaps to to change the metaphor. I want to view this like a symphony that progresses in two different movements. And these are the two primary movements, I would argue, is happening in the flood, in the arc narrative. Movement number one, judgment and decreation of the first world. Curtain closes and then it reopens to salvation and recreation in a new world. So from judgment and decreation to salvation and recreation. That's what we'll be doing today. So first, judgment and decreation. This is the first movement. Something you learn shortly after becoming a parent or perhaps a teacher is that not all children's Bibles are created equal. Now to be sure, there are age-appropriate ways to teach some of the more gnarly and graphic and sexual content in the Bible, which obscures the details enough to honor the child's frame, but also stays tethered to the word enough to honor the intention of the text. However, that's not always the case. Sometimes the sheen that is lathered on is so glossy that it completely disfigures the main point of the story, and I would say the story of the flood is, is probably the biggest offender in this case because it's, it's often presented with a patriarchal Santa of sorts surrounded by the happiest, most chipper floating zoo that you could ever imagine with giraffes and hippos high-fiving each other and a Everything is grand and there's a great rainbow in technicolor over it with the only thing missing being a daiquiri in Noah's hands. (laughs) But that presentation misses an absolutely crucial part, which the story may, may give a nod to, but it doesn't stare in the face. Namely, that the entire world, humans and animals, Drowned to death in terror and agony beneath the ark. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Did you, did you hear the repetition over and over again? Not only does the Lord not feel embarrassed to say it, he repeated it over and over again so we would feel the weight. Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life. So that's a graphic description. You breathe life in, not anymore they don't. Because he blotted them out. This was the just and righteous and horrifying judgment of God on the world because of human sin. And we need to tell the truth about this to our kids, to ourselves, because not only can a child understand this, but a child needs to understand this in age-appropriate ways. The most important thing that any healthy human, boy or girl, man or woman, can understand is this. The wages of sin is death. You try and soft-pedal that. You try and 
obscure that. You tried to sand down the edges so smooth that there is no remaining grit of judgment. You don't just end up losing the judgment, you end up losing the gospel. There is no good news without staring the bad news directly in the eyes. At least no good news that can save. And so we must not merely see the judgment in the flood, but we must feel the horror and the weight of it as a world of people whilst living in open rebellion, giving in marriage and living and partying, totally in rebellion against God, but not yet feeling the consequences of it, thinking they are safe, all of a sudden see a black cloud appear on the horizon and then throughout the final week that cloud grows bigger and bigger until they're encased in a strange darkness. And then the water starts to fall from the sky. And then a deluge starts to come from the sky. And you can picture everyone with increasing concern as the flood goes from ankle to knee to waist, as they scramble onto their roof and up into the trees. And as Noah's neighbors who once yelled in mockery at him are now pleading with him, to open the door, which he cannot do because he didn't shut it. It's too late. And then take that terrible picture out of the clouds and have that moment of recognition where you realize that all of us in this room, apart from the grace of God, deserve that. And that's true. And if you don't believe that, then you don't understand the story at all. And the gospel will make no sense. So, so have you had that realization? No. We must not sand down the edges of the story. We must not bury the devastation in pastel colors. We must look first at the horror and consequences of sin. Even Jesus himself, far from soft peddling the Noah story, actually repurposed it to use as a picture of what will happen to every human who rejects him. Matthew 24, 37 through 39, for this is Jesus, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and he swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And these are the people we work with. And these are people that, that we rub elbows with who are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and have no clue. They're so blind to the judgment that awaits them if they reject Jesus Christ. There is coming a great judgment. When all will see Jesus Christ in his glory, for the Christian you will behold him in grateful glory as the rock of ages that has lifted you high above God's righteous judgment. But for the Christ rejecter, they will behold him in horror as they enter into eternal judgment. Horror, because they rejected the one who would have been their salvation. So yes, we see the flood is a sober picture of God's just judgment on 
the earth. And it is a warning. It is a warning to the world now of greater judgment that is to come. So we don't sand that down. We stare that in the face first. However, that's not the only theme in that first movement. The way the text speaks of the flood, if we are to understand it fully in in the larger context of redemptive history, it, it beckons us to zoom out and to see that this isn't just judgment, but this is a decreation moment. That is, this is Genesis 1 in reverse. God is not merely judging sinners with an arbitrary judgment, but he is completely unmaking the world that he made in Genesis 1. So I want to draw your attention to a few ways that we see the text overtly communicating this to us to, to help us visualize how we should understand the flood. First, we see it in the language of the movement from day to night. So 40 days and 40 nights, as opposed to the language in the creation week of what? Evening and morning. So creation week, the world is waking up to a brighter and brighter dawn. And that's repeated all throughout Genesis 1, but now it's reversed. The rain came down, not from evening to morning, but from day to night. Because the world is moving not towards more light, but is being plunged into a chaotic darkness. And it repeats that language of of 40 days and 40 nights twice in the text, once today in verse 12, but last week we saw it also in verse 4. And I'm going to reread that verse because in verse 4 is where you really feel in your bones in multiple ways this decreation reality. It says, this is Genesis 7, 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing I have made I will blot out from the ground. So here God speaks of a week, but not a creation week. Rather, a week that anticipates a great decreation. We also see decreation in how the flood itself came about. And so we'll recall in the creation week, it says in Genesis 1-7, and God made the expanse or, or the firmament to speak in the king's language. And it separated, the point of it was to separate the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. So this is this ordering that God does with the waters. And so God brought order out of the initial watery chaos. But now we have in Genesis 7, 11 through 12, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were open and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And, and so here, the, the very thing that was established to separate the waters, the firmament is torn. The veil is torn between the waters. In Job thirty-eight eleven, the Lord tells Job, as he's recounting the creation of the world to Job, The Lord says that he said this to the sea, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. But now in this great flood, he removes 
this command. And he issues another one, namely, rush forth and converge. And, and so by this decree from creation's king, the dam bursts. And because the world had become chaotic and corrupt through sin, the waters rush back towards another primordial chaos into a state of decreation. And the apostle Peter summarizes this writing. And again, there's other places we could go that will have to wait, but Peter summarizes it. Second Peter three, five through six, he says, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So that's about as clear as you can get on that. The world, the world died through water. So all breath, breath is removed from the earth as the waters do their judging and their cleansing work. All breath, of course, except Noah and his family and the pair of animals for the receding of the world. They, as this primordial, chaotic, watery world coalesces, they were being buoyed up while the waters prevailed for 150 days. So curtain closes and starts to open again. As the narrative turns, the symphony swells into another movement. And, and we could say the theme of this movement is salvation because God saved Noah and his family, which is a, a wonderful and glorious Thing, but more is happening here than, than the, just that. The, the salvation that he's accomplishing is larger than just eight people not dying. What we see is after the judging and decreating of an old world, through Noah, God brings salvation and recreation to the world. That is, in a sense, Genesis 8 is a new Genesis 1. And so like we just did with the decreation, I want to quickly show you a few places where we see this because this is important for us understanding what the gospel accomplishes, which we'll get to. First, chapter eight, verse one, it says, but God remembered Noah. Again, that's the center of the chiasm. That's the blinking neon sign of the story. God's faithful remembrance to his promises and to his covenant people. He will always keep his promise. Then it goes on. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. Underline wind in your Bible and the waters subsided. And that word wind is important because that's the exact same word in Genesis 1-2, the word ruach, when it says that darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit, exact same word of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. And so this is a spirit wind that is hovering over the face of the waters. God is accomplishing something huge here. He has brought Noah and his family, his covenant people into a new reality. And the spirit is going to do a new work. And then after the spirit wind hovers over the waters in 8-1, from there we immediately see the waters separating 
and dry land appearing again. Just like it says in day three of the creation week. And we also see this movement from old to new in the repeated frame of, of 40 throughout the narrative. 40, of course, stands for a time of testing and maturity for the people of God before he brings them into a new reality. For instance, 40 years of wilderness wanderings before the promised land, 40 days of Goliath's, ta uh, Goliath's taunts until King David emerges to slay him, and of course, our Lord's 40 days in the wilderness of temptation as preparation for his saving work. And here the rains poured down for 40 days, then the waters prevailed for 150 days. And then after the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, it says in verse six, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. And so we see this 40 bracketing the entire flood, 40 days of rain, and then Noah waiting 40 days. And it's because that's not, as you know, an accident. It's because Noah, as the representative of God's covenant people, had made his way through a watery wilderness. And he had withstood the time of testing through his faith, through his obedience, and had come out of the other side of it into a new world now, a new reality. And then Noah several times sends out birds to see if it's time. Is it time to, to enter into it? And after the third attempt, just as the Spirit descended upon our Lord like a dove after his baptism, so the dove comes and descends on the ark after its baptism through the flood. And it returns and it comes with an olive branch in its mouth, declaring not only that it's now time to get off, but that God's declaration over his covenant people is peace, a dove with an olive branch, double peace there. It will come through the seed of Noah. It will come through the line of Noah. The seed of the woman had made it through the flood. And so peace will be the final word for the people of God. And then next week, we'll see Noah coming out of the ark with all the animals and given the dominion mandate again as he steps into a new world as a new Adam. And will, Lord willing, track his progression from ark to altar and consider more of these recreation themes next week. But I want to conclude our time today by applying these things to us. Because understanding this progression from decreation to recreation is not just an interesting take on the story of Noah, but it profoundly impacts how we understand what the gospel is, how we understand what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished in time and space in this world that then we are caught up into by faith. That we, as the body of Christ, are commissioned to release into the world by the Holy Spirit. Namely, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the first day of a new creation. And the gospel is entrance into this life of new creation. In the everlasting man, 
Chesterton lights our imaginations on fire with this truth, writing this. He said, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to to the place found the empty grave and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. Or, as Jesus says in Revelation 21.5, which is much more important than Chester 10. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And this is what salvation is. It is salvation from the wrath of God for our sins, to be sure. But it is also the decreation of our old man, where we therefore were buried with Christ through baptism into his death. And when we trust Christ, our old man was crucified on the cross. Our old man was buried into the heart of the earth. Our old man was decreated. And more, through our union with Jesus Christ, we are united to his resurrection. And we are united to the new creation that he is about. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. This is true of you, Christian. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new, not just will come, has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us a job to do. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation on behalf of Jesus Christ. So this is our marching orders to usher in the new creation that Christ accomplished through the Holy Spirit, to usher it in through our lives and to usher it in through our witness. Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Christ will save the world. Recreation will spread to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of light will swallow up all the darkness. However, as I already said, not everyone you know is a part of this recreation. They are currently not reconciled to Jesus Christ. For them, they are currently headed towards the evening, not the dawn. And that is why Christ spoke these words to Christians. This is our task, to bring this ministry to the world that Jesus is reconciling, but who isn't a part of that yet. So my encouragement to us, my exhortation to us. Let's do this on purpose this coming week. Let's awaken each morning with 2 Corinthians 5.17 in our thoughts. It is our memory verse. Let's memorize it. And let's not just memorize it, but let's believe it. Let's see ourselves as God sees us, 
as agents of new creation on purpose in our work and in our words. Let us pray for a holy boldness to speak the good news of Jesus Christ to someone who you know does not believe it. And speak it knowing there is nothing in the world you could ever do to convince them of it, which actually takes the pressure off. You can't save anybody, but Christ can, and he does, and he will through you. That's the reason you're a Christian 2,000 years after the resurrection. Because lots of Christians for a long time believe that. And so let's believe it this week. And let's work with holy confidence, knowing that our faithfulness today, through our work, through our witness, will spread downstream unto a thousand generations. God has promised to do that. And do you remember the center of the chiasm? God remembered Noah. God is faithful to his promises. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, oh, how grateful are we for your word that the creator of the world wrote a book concerning salvation and we have it. We thank you. We thank you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this resurrection reality that we are now already a part of. We confess that we often don't even think in these categories. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you would not just capture our imagination with the glory of the gospel, but you would empower our actions and you would fill us with faith and you would fill us with love that we would move towards those who are not yet reconciled to Jesus Christ and we would plead with them to be reconciled, to be saved. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray.
with bleeding hearts extend your hands to receive your Lord's benediction upon you. Pilgrim Hill, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And amen. Amen. Praise God from whom.